Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 222. Good luck, 222. We'll see. Well, just ahead, EOG Resources, a massive polluting oil and gas company, talks about clean tech. Plus, Advanced Micro Devices gives us a rare real-time update and a fascinating conversation with Allegro Microsystems CEO, Vinit Nargawala, it's a controversial chip maker moving from cars to windmills and, and yeah, from a little bit of controversy. But we'll see. First, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brand. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks and Move with episode number 222. Siobhan Field joins me right now on the mic. Uh, and Siobhan, uh, 220, isn't it? There are these, I have a friend who's who's has gone from being a, a devout Christian to being really into astrology. And she keeps posting on her Instagram Two, 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 and four, 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 and what? I don't know what these things mean. It's supposed to be something cosmic. I don't know. I, I'm not sure either. I, I have heard. Uh, I also have friends who are into that numerology kind of deal. I know that one, one, one is supposed to be very auspicious. Not sure about two, 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 and avoid six, six, six. Duly noted. Yeah, it all seems ridiculous to me, but you know. God knows I worship at the gods of stock prices sometimes, so it's just as stupid. Uh, but we're going to dig into some companies instead of just stock prices here. With your help, Siobhan, thank you. Yes, indeed. So, Corey, what stock particularly are you looking at today? Let's look at EOG Resources. All right, beautiful. EOG Resources, it trades with the ticker EOG, market cap $78 billion. Shares went up 4% in the last week. But for the last 12 months, shares are up 11%. So what is driving that growth with EOG, Corey? So EOG, um, uh, well, uh, so EOG, interesting company um, uh, in the S&P 500, one of the biggest sort of unconventional oil drillers. That is to say they use horizontal fracking to uh, uh, in some highly productive shale zones in the U.S. in particular to drill for oil and gas. Um, and they're very good at it. They're some of the best and biggest in the business. But I've been listening to this fascinating podcast uh, from my friend Molly Wood. It's called Everybody in the Pool. And it focuses on the business behind climate change and has some sort of surprising business solutions to climate change. And I'm constantly surprised with the companies creating um, uh, uh, new solutions as well as the companies creating the climate crisis itself and trying to abate it, which brings us to EOG. Siobhan, it's called EOG. Do you know why? 
I don't. Please illuminate me. They don't like to advertise it, but it's the old Enron oil and gas. This was a big chunk. It was a real business within the fake business of Enron. So it's not the place you would think these days that you would look for ethical leadership. And yet it's exactly what it seems that we're getting from EOG CEO Ezra Yakum. Um, I don't know if it's Yakum or Yakum, but uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, Mr. Yakum, uh, he you know is running one of the largest crude oil and natural gas exploration companies in the U.S. and and they've long talked about being low cost, highest return. But of late, they described the company. He describes the company, his own company, as focused on being among the lowest cost, highest return, and lowest emission producers. Lowest emission producers in oil and gas. This is a focus of a company that is that is, you know, one might argue is is one of the companies that uh, contributes to greenhouse gas emissions and the, and the destruction of the ozone layer and um, the warming of the earth. And yet they're very focused on fixing that problem, not least of which in the last week in conference uh, 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 commentary at the Barclays CEO Energy Power Conference in New York City, he talked about reducing leaks, capturing gas emissions and offsetting the pollution that his company inevitably causes a remarkable conversation here from EOG Resources CEO Ezra Jacob. Ultimately, our net zero ambition, uh, which is for scope one and two by 2040, it, it is a three-pronged approach of reduce, capture, and offset. Uh, reduction we're doing in the field every day. Uh, recently, we rolled out, last year, I guess, we rolled out iSense, which is a continuous methane monitoring uh, system. It allows us to identify around our facility basically fugitive emissions leak, uh, 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 methane leaks. It triggers an alarm in our control room. Our control room can then send people out to repair it. It's in many ways uh, a little bit better than third party uh, procedures. It's a very same type of setup. The difference though is that in our control room, the data that comes in also measures other things on our facility, pressures, tank levels, lugging effect, how the well's producing. What that allows us to do is not only understand that there's a leak out there and repair it, but it allows us to understand the root cause. What is actually going on there? And we've actually already integrated some of that data into some new facilities design. That would ultimately be the right answer. We've experimented with other things such as lean fuel, uh, other operating procedures. We've swapped out equipment as well on the reduction side. On the capture side, we're actually piloting a, a carbon capture and storage project. Uh, we're, we're Currently injecting, we've been injecting off and on throughout the year, learning about that. Primarily right now, we've used off-the-shelf technology, but we're actually doing some experimentation out there of our own uh, to try and drive forward some proprietary technology. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, you know, we think carbon capture actually aligns very well with what we, with some of our core competencies. That's subsurface characterization. It's obviously drilling of wells, mechanical operation of wells. But then we've also developed a very strong facilities uh, in-house, and we think that we've got a real core competency there. What we think we can bring to the table on carbon capture and storage is not necessarily trying to capture, you know, all the emissions from the island here and store it offshore somewhere with a massive endeavor like that. We think, just like the way we do oil and gas, there's an area out there to be much more fit for purpose, be much more dynamic. I think that's what it's really going to take for much of the industry to be able to achieve net zero ambition. That's kind of where we're driving on our carbon capture and storage. So Siobhan, this, is, this seems like real action, not just talk um, from this company uh, that is really focused on, on yeah, coming up with, um, uh, you know, coming up with this, this, these ideas and, and, and plans 
to reduce their carbon footprint and get to net zero uh, by 2040. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, Corey, sometimes when we hear these things, the the term greenwashing comes to mind, doesn't it? Like companies are saying they're doing stuff, but are they actually, or is it just a PR release that they want the world to think that they're, uh, you know, on the green path? But it does sound like EOG have some really good initiatives and um, it would be nice to see all energy companies go down this path, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I and I, I again I think that it's interesting to sort of imagine how different the world's going to be um, once these once we get to some of those big goals of having more electric vehicles in the United States and the world's biggest economy and having companies like EOG not polluting and 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 you know it's 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 just forget about the efficacy of it it's just interesting to watch the attempts and who's doing it. It is, you know, a little bit, it's a, it's a familiar name to the listeners and also to you and I, certainly, you can't help but think about um, this shift to, to greener technology without thinking of our friend Elon Musk. Our friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, he, he did spearhead. I have a great picture. Of, I have a great photo of the three of us. Yes. I, do you have your eyes closed? I, I I remember taking one with your eyes closed and you were not. No, I think his eyes were closed. There's another picture of his that was reflecting right back into the light. It was, it was just not meant to be. No, but um, but we did have some fun out there at SpaceX and, and uh, Tesla. And uh, yeah, those were good times. All right, Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at advanced micro devices, one of our favorites. All right. Lovely. Advanced micro devices. It trades with the ticker AMD. Market cap $178 billion. Shares up 3% in the last week, but last 12 months, shares are up 38%. What is the story there with advanced micro? Well, look, um, uh, this company has, has made great uh, success and great uh, progress in selling chips into data centers. Data center businesses have been very strong. And why has it been so strong? Because of AI. And uh, there's a real question about how long this AI boom and the build out is going to happen. We certainly see companies investing in the hardware to create AI solutions, even if the AI businesses aren't there yet and people aren't using AI as much as maybe they will in the future. Uh, and so it's really the question is how long can this boom go on? Uh, AMD speaking um, uh, at the Goldman Sachs Cornucopia and Technology Conference in San Francisco this week. Um, so interesting to see the conversations from AMD because what happened from AMD is something really rare, which is to say just weeks after a conference call where they announced the last quarter, they actually talked this week about what's going on right now, real-time information about sales. Companies never do this. They are, Even if things are going well, they don't want to tell anyone because if they slow down later, they don't want people to get too excited about what they said in, in week four uh, if things are different in week 12. But boy, uh, AMD CEO Lisa Su not afraid to talk to the analyst investors who were already saying they didn't care about the old news, what happened last quarter, what's the new news? And Lisa Su, CMD, CEO of AMD, lots of letters there, CEO of AMD, Lisa Su, saying the new news is just as good as the old news. We have you know the highest uh, memory bandwidth and memory capacity. And you know even since our last earnings call, I would say over the last 30 days, what we've seen is a continued acceleration of those engagements 
and a number of those engagements have now turned into customer commitments. So there are a number of folks that have um, just just started uh, deploying and will deploy through um, the second half of this year. Uh, customer commitments are people who want to ensure that um, they're very, very early in the cycle uh, because they see the, the capabilities of the hardware. Uh, they've gotten, you know, really, they've given us really uh, you know, good feedback on, on the software and how we can work with them on it. So, you know, I would say overall, uh, we continue to see um, you know, just huge opportunity around, um, you know, AI in the data center for us. So she's doing nothing to calm down the the animal spirits of uh, Wall Street investors around AI, around AI hardware, uh, talking about huge opportunity, talking about the acceleration is just as strong as it was during the conference call of a month ago, 30 days ago. Uh, and, and indeed, a continued acceleration of those engagements. Those are super bullish words and a super bullish context, Siobhan, uh, from this company. Yeah, really interesting. Um, given, you know, we're, we're all hearing about the chip shortages for for uh, AI. And um, I'm not surprised, you know, if, if you're going to make surprise remarks immediately after you've put out earnings, it's got to be good news, right? You're not going to choose to put bad news out at that point. So, um, I, I do wonder, though, are there any sort of restrictions from the SEC on this? To, how do they think about? No, it's a regular Reg FD, which is the regulation of about full disclosures. Um, uh, well, so it used to be, and I used to go to these conferences where the CEOs would meet with investors quietly and say, yeah, quarter's looking a little soft. And they wouldn't put out a press release. And if you happen to be in the room and got that information, the companies could do that. They could even tell some investors and not tell other investors or give them hints. And it wasn't explicitly uh, forbidden. Reg FD changed that. But the format of speaking at a big conference at the Goldman Sachs Technology Conference is not considered by the SEC. It's considered to be a full disclosure. It's considered to be putting that information out there, not least of which because these conferences are broadcast because podcasts like ours can get the sound bites from uh, conferences like that. Most podcasts don't bother. But our listeners now know exactly what's going on right now at AMD. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that's why they come to the drill down, Corey. So what's your next uh, company you're looking at? I want to talk about GitLab, a company we've never spoken of before. Beautiful. GitLab Inc. It trades with the ticker GTLB, market cap of about $8 billion. Shares up 8% in the last week, but for the last 12 months, shares up just 5%. All right, what's going on there, CJ? Yeah, a little bit of a turnaround there for GitLab. Uh, recently. So I've I found myself using, have you, do you use chat GPT much at all? Siobhan, I know you're, it's not writing all the art magazine articles that you're writing, but still. You no, know, honestly, I don't. I, I have, I've used it a couple of times and I, I find the accuracy to be very questionable. And of course, in our game, you know, you, you got to get things right. And so I think it's an interesting starting point to sort of generate ideas, but no, I, I, I'm hesitant to use it for anything that you know, needs to be factual and um, accurate. Yeah, well, uh, for good reason. And yet, um, so I found myself using it uh, to, to do some uh, Excel programming this week. So one of the Excel functions I use sometimes is the is blank function. I don't know if you're a big Excel geek like I am. Uh, and indeed, I'm using Google Sheets quite a lot, but um, uh, for different things. But, but uh, uh you know, the is blank things. I'll look, I'll look through a column or an array of numbers. And if there's a column, if there, if 
some cell is blank. It'll do some different kind of calculation or something. And I was doing something in Excel and I thought I had to look it up and I'm always like going through Google and trying to figure out how to use it. And I find the Excel help useless as well as the, the, the Google Sheets help useless. I went to chat GPT and explained what I was trying to do with Excel. And seconds later, it gave me a really lovely formula, not using is blank and, you know, returning a true statement when the cell is empty and a false statement when the cell is not empty. And it was just a, it was a open quote, close quote, or it was just, it was, uh, it was just brilliant. Um, and I thought, oh, this chat GPT written by programmers and vectorizing large language models uh, might actually be written by programmers for programmers. It might be the thing that makes programming so much easier that programmers don't need help. Where do programmers go to get help writing programs right now? They go to GitLab. The business of GitLab is a toolbox for software development teams. They design uh, uh, systems to help teams uh, collaborate and build software together. Well, if, if ChatGPT is doing it, GitLab doesn't have to be. And that might mean developers can manage their own code more easily with ChatGPT, not GitLab. They can, they can track the changes they make or automate steps using ChatGPT, not using GitLab. And we've seen, uh, uh, we've seen two things. We've seen programmers embrace GitLab before the rest of the world, sorry, embrace ChatGPT before the rest of the world. Programmers love ChatGPT and they got there first. And we've seen a slowdown in the revenue growth at GitLab. So the open question coming into earnings this week from GitLab is, what's going on with their own AI um, uh, tools and uh, features? And are their customers using their uh, the GitLab AI features? And indeed, when they've released these products lately, uh, are their users giving them positive feedback? Well, here's their CEO, GitLab CEO, Sid Sinjbrandij, talking about the feedback they're getting from users of their new AI platform. The early feedback to Duo has been very positive. Customers get that they need AI features, not just for, for example, coding, but they need it throughout the DevOps lifecycle. And uh, we've uh, just published the report, actually, we're publishing it today, the state of DevOps. And even for developers, which is only kind of a third of a DevSecOps platform, only 25% of their time is spent coding. 75% of their time is elsewhere. So it's really important to have a set of features throughout the life cycle. We're really happy that we have 10 features out there already. Some of the, the oldest feature we have suggested previewers has over 100,000 users today. So we're excited about progressing that further. And it's great to see that customers recognize that they need a suite of AI features and therefore we're, we're excited about Duo. So there you have it. They're excited, but uh, they're getting a lot of reviews in those features. Uh, the, the, the GitHub specialties offerings that they have on GitLab uh, seem to be getting positive reviews and by lots of developers. And maybe that's hope that the GitLab slowdown won't uh, get uh, even worse um, with uh, with ChatGPT's success, even though I'm liking ChatGPT. That is really interesting, isn't it? I, I hadn't thought about that, that the programmers were using this and, and your example of um, finding an algorithm uh, easily uh, is just such a great application of ChatGPT. It was fun. It was fun because it made me think, it, it made me express, I, I probably could have figured it out, 
but it really made me t- uh, the, think about how can, how can I use words to describe if this column is blank and this column has certain blanks and not blank and this column has a greater uh, total than the other column, how can I do a calculation here and not do a calculation there? And to really, f- in my own brain, f- kind of figure out what I was trying to do. And the code shouldn't have been the hard part. My brain should have been the hard part. And indeed, that was the only hard part. Chat GPT made it so easy for me. We'll see if there's business for GitLab going forward and how much impact that'll have from competitors like ChatGPT. Okay, but Corey, what I want to know is, what was the prompt you put into ChatGPT to get that solution? You know, like it, it literally just said as something interesting as the answer sometimes. Well, and, and more so. I mean, that's the point. The code shouldn't be the interesting part. It's what the code does. And and in this case, well, to simplify it, I was I was trying to say if I've got a series of of numbers added up in one column, I'm overly simplifying. But if, if the 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 if the series of numbers in one column is uh, sums to a larger total than the series of numbers in the second column. Can I do a calculation in the of the numbers in the first column and not do the calculation of the numbers in the second column? And can I do that in 10 characters of code? And bam, ChatGPT gave it to me. Super cool. That is that is very, very cool. And you know another upside to this, Corey. There are prompt engineering jobs going for 600 grand in in this in New York and, and all over the place. Companies can't uh, get enough of folks who have skills in prompt engineering for ChatGPT. So there you go. Are you saying I'm employable? We both know that to not to be true. <laughs> Coming up next, our guest, Allegro Microsystems CEO, Navit Nargawala, uh, a controversial company, uh, not least of which because the ownership structure of the company is a little bit weird, but uh, we'll talk about that. And we're going to talk about the real opportunity for uh, 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 not the most complicated semiconductors in a world of um, uh, renewable energy, electric cars, and more right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight, ever. With Era, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined, as we promised, by Allegro Microsystems CEO, Vineet Nargalwala, joining us from Marlboro, Mass, I guess. Vineet, is that correct? That's correct. So uh, you guys are in a really interesting place in the semiconductor industry um, uh, because of a lot of interesting changes in the semiconductor industry, always changing, always growing, prices always falling. But uh, your focus on automobiles is expanding to some really interesting places. Tell us about what you make and where most of your business is now. And we can talk about where it might be in the next few years. Sure, Corey. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to talk about Allegro. Uh, So we design and sell uh, sensing and power semiconductor uh, uh, products. So uh, we've been in automotive over three decades. In fact, that's where we really honed our craft. Uh, And I think what differentiates us uh, versus other semiconductor companies is we really start with the application in mind. And so we got to start with speed and position sensing in, um, you know, your traditional internal combustion engine driven vehicles. So think of transmission speed, wheel speed, uh, cam and crank uh, shaft uh, sensors and And, so on. And these are chips that are written specifically to do one thing and one thing only? That's exactly right. So these are... Uh, what we call application-specific parts. Right. Uh, in some cases, they're also known as ASICs or application-specific ASICs, integrated yeah. circuits. Um, however, 
what we develop for one customer is usually applicable to other customers uh, in automotive. And so there's a there's a, actually a pretty big scaling effect across OEMs, across geographies for the same application. So it goes from being an ASIC to what we call an application-specific standard part. Uh, but as I was saying, so we got to start an internal combustion engine uh, vehicles, but one of our biggest applications was current sensing, and that has now become really table stakes in the transition to electric vehicles. There's over 40 right. applications uh, in electric vehicles for current sensing. So think of the electric vehicle as, you know, you've got a 400 volt or 800 volt power source, but everything on the vehicle operates at 12 volt or 24 volt or 48 volt. And then there's a traction motor, which is actually running on AC. So there's a very big power conversion challenge and you've got to do it efficiently. You've got to do it safely. And every time you do that power conversion, you're going to measure current before and after. So, so our products are really critical to making EVs efficient and making them work. And so, uh, and then on a on the power semiconductor side, we sell a variety of p- products, including motor drivers, LED drivers, gate drivers, which are essential for driving the power electronics components that make EVs work. So we're really excited about the transition to electric vehicles in automotive. Um, and I'll pause there because I'm sure you have a bunch of other questions well, around our position right, in automotive. Of course I do. I, I've, and I've been covering semiconductors for a very, very, very long time. And that was the most easy to understand explanation of ASICs ever. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. Um, uh, give me a sense of how many ASICs chips in auto, an internal combustion engine uh, car would have used compared to an electric car? So um, the industry rule of thumb I would tell you that is that on an EV, and before I say that, give you some numbers. Uh, one thing that is important to understand is that it's not just a transition to e- electric vehicles. It's also the addition of safety-related feature sets that really lead to semi-autonomous operations. So whether you think about uh, advanced safety features like lane departure, lane keep, uh, automatic emergency braking, all of this is resulting in a lot more uh, electronic content or semiconductor content. Collectively, we call this as e-mobility. So the electrification of vehicles, as well as the adoption of these advanced safety feature sets. And generally, I would say that the semiconductor content is growing exponentially in uh, EVs with safety, these advanced safety features compared that to an ICE vehicle. You know, an ICE vehicle, uh, which is shorthand for internal combustion engine-driven cars, uh, largely at a mechanical construct, right? The, the internal combustion engine has really been perfected over the last century. And with the EVs, the the model is all changing to being very semiconductor or, or controller-based as opposed to being very mechanical uh, uh, construct-based. And, and has that led you to see other markets that are not necessarily adjacent because you, you find yourself making these Sensors for current or other not sensors. It's a, it's a, I don't mean that it's an insult. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you know you're you're the the stuff that you're making that that are particularly effective with um, these electric vehicles uh, that are, of course are are the direction for the entire automotive industry. Do you then find yourself making things that are applicable or uh, into other industries you might not have been looking at previously? Yeah, that's a great point, Corey. Uh, the the challenge or the problems we solve on vehicle, especially related to electric vehicles is very similar to challenges that other industries face, notably the clean energy industry. So whether you think about 
solar, wind, clean hydrogen, uh, the EV charging infrastructure. The power conversion challenge there is very similar to that on an automobile uh, in the transition to electric. And so the products we design, build for automotive find great application in these other industries. So our current sensors, our motor drivers, our gate drivers find great application in, in these new emerging industries around clean energy transition, as well as in automation. So a great example is the motor driver we sell for precision steering wheel control in automobiles. It's the same motor right. driver we sell into robotic arms for precision control of robots on a factory line. So oh, that's, that's a great example. Yeah, so it's a great example of the technology leverage and sort of the similarity in the problem sets that exist across multiple industries. And uh, to, is is this because those there those, all of those industries are responding to the same sort of um, uh, trends as a software to put it, but to, uh, customer desires or or mechanical abilities in that are just happening throughout the world of of the use of composite materials, the use of of electric, electricity that's more steady state and so on? Yeah, actually, it's not a soft term. Uh, we call them megatrends. And there are two big megatrends that are impacting and disrupting multiple industries. The first one so is electrification. Taylor Swift. Oh, sorry, electrification. <laughs> electrification. Yeah, not that kind of megatrend. Um, so electrification, right? Everything is getting electrified, whether it's our power tools that uh, we buy from you know your standard um, uh, uh, home improvement store, or it's your uh, two wheeler transportation, your heavy truck transportation, your buses, cars. Everything is getting electrified. Um, the second is automation. Uh, there's a big shortage of labor. There is an ever increasing need for productivity, and so everything is getting automated. Uh, and these are the two big trends that we think are secular, they're pervasive, they are uh, driving significant technology discontinuity and disruption, and will create opportunities for those who are well positioned for decades to come. There's some irony in the, in that the most complex semiconductors in the world, not the stuff that you make, but call it the AMD yeah. uh, uh, CPUs or, or NVIDIA graphic processors and so on, that are driving the ability to automate are uh, and and the the socioeconomic issues and global issues that are re causing reduction in, in the labor force are leading to a demand for industrial chips such as yours to make up the gap that is causing this sort of uh, flywheel effect. Yeah, look, I think there's a lot more variables and factors that are resulting in the need for automation, right? I think there are there are demographic changes, there are geopolitical. Uh, shifts in where things get manufactured or produced versus where they're sold. I think there is just a uh, more broadly a need for more automation. Um, automation also results in better quality. It results in the continued um, movement of you know human focus in theory. to more more value added tasks. This has always been the theory. It doesn't always work out that way. Well, I, I think uh, you know from where we sit we see definitely these trends coming together. Um, and so I think for us, you know, the opportunity is ripe to make sure that we're helping our customers in their transition to a more automated world, to a more electrified world. And I think the, the megatrend on electrification is particularly interesting 
because when you think about the clean energy applications, um, you know, 80% of new energy source uh, sources that came online in the past uh, few years have been renewable energy, notably solar. And when you think about the challenge where renewable energy is usually not produced where it needs to be consumed. So there is a need to transport it. There's a need to store it. Um, and all has to happen very efficiently. And this is where solutions that have existed in other industries are coming to the forefront and are creating, you know, with some customization opportunities for more application. So I think it's a really exciting time uh, yeah. to be in the semiconductor space, especially serving these these markets around e-mobility and around clean energy. Oh, absolutely. I, as I started researching for our interview, I was just fascinated by all the things that you are into and uh, um, and all these big markets. Uh, I also, speaking of geopolitical, I took note that uh, two-thirds of your manufacturing, your fabulous, which is to say you design the Correct. chips, you don't make them, um, not to mention fabulous, that's a whole other different thing, but uh, 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 your fabulous and, and your manufacturing Two-thirds of that about takes place in Taiwan with two uh, producers. And, and a full third of your production happens, and I'm not talking about tests and other things, but a full third mm -hmm. of your production happens in the U.S., happens in Minnesota. I was surprised by that. Yeah, so we, we are actually very balanced compared to some of our peers who are in a similar fabulous, uh, if not fabulous, position. Um, <laughs> if not, you know, about they're not. 40% of our wafer supply comes from um, uh, one of our partners, Polar Semiconductor, which is actually a Minnesota-based company. Uh, we own 30% of, of Polar. Um, and then the rest of our supply comes from our two foundry partners in Taiwan. Um, our manufacturing is actually, uh, we have a back-end test facility in the Philippines, which, which does about 50% of our assembly. So we are very balanced geographically, and, and that's what customers like about us, that we have a lot of options, and we are able to route um, uh, you know, the production the way our customers want to be served. It creates a lot of flexibility and a lot of resilience in our supply chain, and that's something that I think that sets us apart compared to some of our peers in, in, that are serving these markets today. Should uh, there, of course, is a great geopolitical focus on the risk of Taiwan and the saber-rattling at least going on between uh, America and China and what effect that might have on, on protecting Taiwan. How important is it to you that America stands by its agreements to protect Taiwan? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, it's not for us to wade into uh, the, the, the geopolitical uh, discussions. I think what we have to do uh, is make sure we're prepared for any eventuality. And, um, you know, for us um, and for the entire semiconductor industry writ large, Taiwan is incredibly important. And our partners in Taiwan are very important. Um, you know, at, at the same time, China is a big sales region for us. About 25% of our sales are into China. So China as a, as a market uh, is one of the biggest markets for electric vehicles, as well as it is for clean energy and industrial automation. And so we want to make sure that um, there is a balance in how we think about our business, how we think about our supply chain. And um, us, along with the other semiconductor players are obviously for making sure that, uh, you know, the tensions are eased and that the entire uh, global infrastructure continues to exist um, in harmony. And we continue to provide more options to our customers. Well, a uh, fascinating story, an interesting company. You guys have done so well of late, and it looks like things are going to continue in that direction if all your hopes and plans 
work out. Like what Microsystem CEO Vinny Nargarwala said in English, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Corey. Thank you for the opportunity. Coming up next on the Drill Down the Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot more about Allegro Microsystems right after this. Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T dot com to learn more. All right, we're back with the drill down. The bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot, that drill down bite. But before we get to that, Siobhan, um, uh, this, I mentioned this company is kind of controversial. All right, then what is the story with Allegro? Can't wait to hear it. So the, the short argument, there may be more others I, I don't know, but there, well, there, so first of all, about 7% of the, of the stock of the float is sold short. So that's on the high end, but not super high. But the short story is kind of interesting here. And, and it's really about Venn diagrams of ownership. So, um, I want you to think of three uh, things in a Venn diagram with an ownership structure. Uh, uh, Allegro Microsystems was spun out of a Japanese company called Sankin, as was a company called Polar. Sankin owns um, 70% of Polar. Sankin owns 30% of Allegro Microsystems. Okay, you got that? So we, okay. Sankin owns a little bit of both the companies. And uh, uh, Allegro also owns a little bit of, uh, has a relationship with with Polar, indeed. So all microchips of all kinds are made on wafers. And about a third of Allegro's uh, microchips are indeed made from Polar wafers. So they buy wafers from Polar. They make, they make chips. Polar's losing money. Allegro's making money. Polar has negative margins. Let's say they're losing money. Allegro has some of the best margins in the business. When Polar's been running out of money, it's been borrowing money from Allegro. So the question is, well, the question is, how long can Allegro keep those great uh, margins that they have had? Um, to quote my friend Bill Alpert, who wrote a great piece in Barron's recently about this, he at least raises some questions. He says, some hedge fund analysts wonder if Polar's undercharging Allegro and therefore subsidizing Allegro's exceptional profit margins. And they wonder if Allegro's margins will persist uh, as Sankin starts to sell its shares, or if it were to sell its shares, in Allegro and Polar. So that's the risk. That's the worry. Um, and that's kind of where we are with that company, uh, where the concern is that their margins are boosted because of this relationship with the money losing Polar. And when Polar decides to start making money, they'll charge Allegro more and there go the margins. That's so interesting. So, Corey, we spoke a little bit about the SEC, you know, intervening in, in, um, in companies earlier in the show. What would they have to say about something like this? Um, I think, so first of all, nothing about this is illegal and it is all disclosed in the financial statements. Um, the question is what degree of risk does it introduce into the stock price? And I can't possibly answer that, but this is the kind of thing when I was a short seller, I would look for, for um, uh, and, I, and to be clear, I ran a, a lot of money on, on the short side um, uh, and hundreds of millions of dollars. It was one of the bigger short only books out there in all of Wall Street. And what this is exactly the kind of thing we would look for is we would look for companies that had um, unusual or unsustainable advantages, whether that's the case with Lego microsystems, I don't know, but things like this are what we would look for. On the other hand, you have what leads to the bite, which is 
where do they expect there to be growth and how much is that growth going to be? Now, they think that this business, and I'm getting to the bite, of, of clean energy semiconductors, which they're growing into, right? That you heard the CEO talking about going from automobiles to all kinds of clean energy things like windmills, um, that that could grow a lot and for a long time. How much? Well, they think that could grow 18% in every one of the next five years and be a $3.5 billion market just five years from now. So 18%, there's your bite, your drill down bite, the number that tells you a whole lot. On the exciting side for this company is that 18% potential growth in power systems and clean energy semiconductors. Uh, on the worrisome side is that uh, confusing, not too confusing, but complicated ownership stake from Sankin of Polar and Allegra. All right, you've been listening to The Drill Down. I'm Corey Johnson. Siobhan Field joining us from Australia. Siobhan, really quick, anything interesting you're working on? Any articles you should be looking forward to from you? You know, I just did one on crypto uh, yesterday, looking at um, at new crypto figures. It was it's now said to be valued uh, at about a trillion dollars. So obviously down from what it was a number of years ago. What's your take on uh, crypto generally, Corey? You you uh, well, a lot of a lot a lot of air is coming out of the balloons uh, of a lot of the speculative things. I, I still strongly believe that that a digital money system is better, a uh, digital system of, of moving money around the world uh, is desperately needed and will make the world a fairer and faster place to do business. Um, and we'll get there eventually. But uh, surely we've seen a lot of things, a lot of projects fall by the wayside. And I have to tell you, the sort of the, the hype level in, in San Francisco is just uh, not no surprise, but nothing like what it was, um, you know, two years ago. Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um I think FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, what happened over there has really sent uh, sent crypto into a little bit of a winter. And of course, at the same time, what happened is AI popped, and we're all about generative and and large language models. So, yeah. Although, well, last word on that: so the FTX and and, and Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, none of what they're accused of had really a lot to do with crypto. It was just an unregulated market. Uh, and and even if it was regulated, they lied about what their assets were. Apparently, that's what they're accused of. Um, and, and, you know, yet were they a, a backer of lots of other crypto projects? Surely. But I think what they did was just old fancy, uh, old fashioned fancy saying something was there when it wasn't and getting people to believe them. But Hollywood anyway. accounting. Mm, interesting. So, exactly. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Drill Down, Siobhan Field. Uh, you can check out her latest uh, all over the interweb. Search for her and you'll find her latest work from Australia. Isaac Webster is our executive producer from the show. Uh, ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire in the Drill Down, is a production of the Business Podcast Network.